Athletic. The Race F1 Tech Show, brought to you by Aramco. This week, it's all about carbon fibre, the wonder material that has transformed Formula One over the past four decades. We're joined by John Barnard, the man who ushered in the carbon fibre era to tell the story of the McLaren MP4 and its legacy. And Gary Anderson also takes a pop at F1's DRS and talks about the latest technical director shenanigans. Welcome to another episode of the Race F1 Tech Show, brought to you by Aramco. I'm Ed Straw, and as always, I'm joined by the inimitable Gary Anderson, who I've had the pleasure of working with for many years now, and yet never fails to teach me something new when it comes to F1 tech matters. It's great to be able to share his knowledge and boundless enthusiasm for showing fans behind the curtain, or perhaps that should be below the bodywork of Grand Prix cars. Welcome, Gary. How's things? Life's good, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Involved in F1 in schools, and it's at Silverstone this year, so the World Championship. So uh, up here to sort of oversee the the technical side of it, but but life's very good, yeah. And that's why you may hear a little bit of ambient background noise, but uh, bustling Silverstone, I have to say, for a, for a midweek uh, afternoon. Yeah, it is, and you know we've got a huge amount of students here, so they're all all here. They're all sitting around somewhere and having lunch and having a chat. So um, yeah, it's nice to see it. It's nice to see these all these. Future Formula One people being trained up, I think that's what F1 in schools is all about. Absolutely, and as I say, we'll uh, we'll get into that on a, on a future podcast in, in some depth. So, what's caught your eye this week, technically, Gary? Well, I think, you know, I just have to relate back to uh, to Austria, to the Grand Prix there. Um, you know, the reality of it is it's, it's a very good Grand Prix, but I think the, the way the track is there, uh, from my point of view, shows that I don't think F1 and FIA know how to make the best out of DRS. Um, it was just too easy, it was far, far too powerful. You've got three sections, one after the other, that basically um, means that you know all you've got to do is, is, is try and stay close enough through those two slow corners, turn one and turn, and turn three, as it's called, um, stay close enough to the car ahead of you, and you can pass. And we saw that with Leclerc and, and, and Verstappen on various occasions during the race. And, and the big problem with that is, is it, it suited... I'm not saying I, I'm criticising Ferrari from winning that race because I think they deserve to win that race but what it, it does it suits somebody that wants to run more downforce in the car for qualifying which they do um, it didn't pay off this time they didn't get on pole but they can run a bit more downforce in the car because they know that that actually works in their hands if they're behind another car they get the, the opportunity of DRS on those three sections the three fast parts so during the race they're they have less drag through those areas, and yet they can carry the wing through the next twiddly bit, which saves the tyres a bit. So, it, it was a cir- I think it's a circuit that was very biased towards cars that were running more downforce than than, than others in general. Um, and the thing for me is, it's it's quite similarly fixed. You just do away with uh, with the DRS zone in, in section two. So you have it up the pit straight and and it could turn one. You don't have it between turn one and turn three as it is, and then you have it again between turn three and turn four. So. Uh, you know, you still have to carry out your manoeuvres when you've when you've caught another car. And uh, and the one thing also, I would love to see if they try with DRS instead of being able to make use of it whenever you're a second behind the car, you make use of it up until you're a second behind a car. So basically, you you can keep the whole field closed up because as, as soon as you drop out of a second behind uh, behind the car in front of you, you can use your DRS to catch them back up again. And you know, then you can use the DRS zones. But then the racing and the overtaking actually becomes 
the responsibility of the driver and he has to have a car that he can do it in and all that sort of stuff. It's not just a free passage because you've got a car that's 18 kilometres or something faster down the straight. So that's my big gripe this, this week, this weekend after Austria. It doesn't always work out like that, but yeah, it's, uh, it's something that I think you need to do something with. I think in the gaming world that's called rubber banding when you're helped to, to catch up. But are you surprised? This is the 12th year of DRS. Now, we can take it as red. You're a little bit disappointed it's still there and still necessary. But are you surprised F1 hasn't just made it more tunable, even if it's not about how many DRS zones they are? The amount of data they've, yeah, they've got, yeah. why is it not live-tuned a bit more often on race weekends? Yeah, the thing is, you know, where does it become, where does it become just too powerful and where is it not powerful enough? And now, you know, people talk about the fact you've got to be within half a second of the car in front of you before you have a before you can actually have a chance to tow past them and in the, in the distance down the straight and that's just the difference in the two cars the problem is that the, the two cars uh, or all the cars basically have a different efficiency so they're they're always going to be that difference and no, not everybody has 18 kilometers faster than everybody else it's it's just going to be down to that car its efficiency and how the drs works so there'll be cars out there that might get 10 kilometers out of the DRS because it gets us 18 kilometers out of the DRS but there's no black and white number that's that's right so I, I think it's 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 the good teams the, the faster teams uh, the bigger budgeted teams that will be able to research it and make that work for you and make that work right and get the maximum speed out of the DRS and the smaller teams will suffer a little bit because they just don't do the same amount of in-depth research for it so it's a, it's a hiding to nothing I think DRS in, in its own little way that um if you design the car to maybe optimize the use of DRS, you can you, you can be good in race day, and you can also be good in, in qualifying because obviously qualifying allows you to use the DRS in in the areas free of you don't have to have a car in front of you. So something like that needs to change. You know, it's, it's one of those sort of situations at the minute. If you can have a car that will qualify up front and you have the, the speed, the efficiency in the car, you know that come race day you'll be able to pass people. And I think that's wrong. You don't have to then plan it so much. So it's just, it does need a review, as you say, and maybe the lengths of the DRSs um, or where they are, how, you, how they operate, you know. It, it, it's not a, bla- not a simple thing to do, I have to say. The, the most simple thing for me would be to do away with it and say, okay, you know, you don't have it, let's see what happens on a race now. Can, you, can somebody actually set the car up with a bit less downforce for the Sunday? and make you know, maximise it because you, the team has to think on their feet as opposed to getting the benefit of that. So I'd love to see them take an opportunity to say, OK, here's a couple of circuits that overtaken as possible without DRS. And let's, let's just not have it for that those couple of weekends and see, and see how it turns out. That's not a bad idea. They're all for experimentation, aren't yeah, they, such yeah, as the sprint yeah, races? Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, well, you know, it's the same for everybody. If you don't have it, you don't have it. So uh, as long as there's ample warning, um, you know, before the races so that teams can go there with a whatever they want their wing set up to be then that's that's fine it's not a drama it's just the way it is it's like having a sprint race as you say and a, and a, and a grand prix it's a, just an odd, a weekend that's different slightly different so be it let's just get on with it yeah drs seems to be here to stay for a while but as you've pointed out a few ways it can maybe be made better Well, let's move on to our main topic for this podcast, which is carbon fibre in Formula 1. We've got your interview with John Barnard coming up shortly, obviously famous for the, the MP4, the first all-carbon monocoque. Now, what was your first experience of carbon fibre in Formula 1? Because I know it said Brabham was a team that used it for bits and pieces under Gordon Murray. I presume that was in your time there in the 70s. It, it was, um, 
latter part of my time they used it as it was in very sheet, much sheet form um, basically they replaced aluminium sheet with a, with a carbon sheet like for example the seat back and that they didn't get, in, get involved in the fact of, of moulding the carbon so you, you could buy sheets of carbon with honeycomb in them carbon composite as it's called um, that end up being uh, stiffer than the aluminium for the same sort of weight of a panel you can you can have like three times the stiffness um, or vice versa if you want it to be um, as stiff as aluminium then you can have a lot lighter so it's it's, it's a very good material um, so yes I come across it and my my first use of it uh, for myself was in the cockpit size on uh, uh, an F3 car, Anson F3 car in 1982 um, because again we built an aluminium bathtub chassis as such and then you put a fiberglass cockpit around the outside of it and I didn't think that was a great idea so we moulded the we moulded the car, carbon sides for the uh, for the cockpit, closed the cockpit off, and to stiffen the chassis up, and it made you know significant difference. So, um, Barnard was the first guy I suppose to really buy into the fact that it was uh, something that you could you know make a chassis out of, and didn't didn't worry too much about the fact that it was quite fragile. Um, I remember whenever um, Adrian Reynard uh, started to do his F3 car, uh, it was a full carbon chassis, and um, there was a there was one of the scrutineers also worked for um, a company that uh, did uh, aircraft reconstruction after um, accidents and whatever. And they had a tail of a, of a helicopter, all made in carbon, hold sort of from the cockpit backwards. And the way they tested these was to hang them on a wall and hang a weight off the back of the tail and then fire a sort of miss- a, a, you know, a shell into it just to see what happened. And one of the tests was I had to pass through the thing to you know come out the other side and still the helicopter could keep flying as such. It's for army helicopters. And they did this test one with a carbon fibre one and they fired this sh- shell into it and there was just a big pile of dust left. And so they walked out the door thinking, what do we do now? But it's just, it shows the application, you know, the materials used. Um, there's so much, carbon fibre is a very loose word, there's just so much, so many different carbons from high strength to, to high stiffness, you know. Uh, you have to choose the right application. And that's the thing with carbon fibre as it's used in Formula One now. Carbon fibre is not just a specific thing. There's all sorts of different weaves. Teams have their own proprietary carbon fibre weaves. If anyone's never been up close with carbon fibre, if you were to pick up, I don't know, a front wing from a Formula One car, you would be astonished by how light it is. Yet yet it's astonishingly strong. So perhaps you could give a bit of an idea of how widespread the use is and how versatile it actually is on a modern Formula One car. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing you couldn't make uh, um, on an F1 car. We've gone through from front, you know, obviously the chassis, the survival cell, the bulkheads within it, the nose shell, front wings, rear wings, rear wing end plates, all the bodywork. Um, we've had gearbox uh, shells, gearbox casings even made out of it with when the gearbox was actually part of that casing. Um, now, it's, now it's slightly different, the gearbox housing is a sort of shell around the outside of the gearbox. But it's... Um, you can apply it to anything. Anything on a, an F1 car, you can apply it to. Uh, it's just you have to use the right materials and the right techniques. To be honest, the biggest thing is whenever you, the biggest difficulty is whenever you try to put inserts into it. That um, you need to fasten bolts and bits and pieces like that into it. So you need to think about that a little bit differently. Um, it's not just like, like putting a thread in a piece of aluminium. And if you're using aluminium inserts, you've got to make sure the temperature difference isn't too much. So you get a, a glue shear because of the the expansion of the aluminium and the carbon fibre doesn't expand. So you have to just the right application, but there is nothing at this point in time in a Formula One car you, you couldn't 
use it for. I mean, the steering wheel's carbon fibre, you know, it's just as simple as that. It's all the paddles, a lot of the paddles on the back of the steering wheel, the gear change paddles and the clutch, the carbon fibre. Everything can be, can be made out of it. And it's, it's a bit like, you know, whatever you go to make something out of aluminium, there's, you know, a list of maybe 20 different grades of aluminium you could use for anything. So you choose the right one, and it's the same with, with carbon fibre. There's, there's a list of at least 20 different carbon fibre weaves or unidirectional cloths, you know, massive amount of stuff. And it's about using the right stuff for the right job. And in terms of that learning curve with what you could do with carbon fibre, obviously you were still going through that when you were with Jordan in terms of developing ways of using it. How steep was that learning curve? How much failed experimentation was there? How much almost surprise was there with how far you could go with it? Well, one of the one of the first things we did with Jordan, actually, uh, other than the chassis and, and wings and bits and pieces of bodywork like, like we're talking about, was the front push rods. Um, and the, on the Jordan, the first Jordan, the 191, we had a, a problem on our initial test of well, the front push rod stiffness, um, and we collapsed one. And it was it was like you either you either up the, ch- the it was a steel steel push rod with a diaphragm down the inside of it. And you either up the weight by making it a bigger section or a, um, you know, a thicker piece of steel. And to get more stiffness out of something that's in compression, you have to up it by quite a lot. So I thought, well, why don't we just wrap it in carbon? Um, so we started and we wrap, you know, we started in the middle, obviously where it buckles at. We started with like a 10 centimetre long piece of carbon wrapped around the tube and then a 20 centimetre long piece. So it staggered itself up the, up the push rod. And we were astounded by the difference. I mean, it was like instantly three to four times the, the buckling stiffness um, for very little weight and um, so we could say that was our first sort of uh, tiptoe into um, carbon fibre suspension because the next thing we did was take the steel out of it because we were only just using the steel inside as the, as the mould as such and then we moulded it from the outside and suddenly we were, before you knew it we had, we had carbon wishbones so it's those sort of things that sort of take you somewhere just whenever you've got a problem you've got to fix it and you think yeah okay. Uh, what if I did that? And you know, you apply it, and then you think, then you start thinking laterally. How do you deal with the initial bit that was up the inside of it? And it it happens again. It's the same with I think John Barnard with the with the McLaren. You know, it was a, initially his car was was all still flat panelish. It was moulded because the 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 tooling, was, as John will tell you, the, the tooling was all inside the uh, the chassis. But they still put a fiberglass cockpit around the outside of it. So you know, you're losing. You're gaining a lot, but you're actually losing the total poten- a lot of the potential. And obviously, it's been magnificent for safety as well, as we saw with Joe Guanyu's shunt at Silverstone, which we talked about last week. How how dramatic has that safety benefit been when you consider some of the accidents that have been survivable over the past twenty years? Not just survivable, but escapable without any real injury, compared to if they'd happened, let's say, in the late seventies when you're in a proper pre carbon fibre monocoque era oh yeah I mean back back in the late 70s you know we we were seeing a time through that where there was probably three to four drivers a year killed in F1 cars uh, or in motor and racing cars and I mean whenever you had a bit of an impact and the impacts were, were nothing like you have now the, the chassis would just collapse the aluminium chassis would just collapse and now that's you know we've, we've gone through all that stage and to be honest you know a huge amount of people have have, have had their life saved by carbon fibre chassis to the extent that that actually gets young drivers coming in don't don't feel the need that much for uh, for survival instincts you know they push themselves into positions that back in the 70s you wouldn't put yourself in because you know you knew that it could hurt um so i think you know if i look back now it's probably 
Martin Donnelly, 19, 1989, uh, 1989, I think it was, or 1990, 1990, 1990 that, uh, where his you know, the car broke, basically. I think if you, if you go to some of these other accidents, Ayrton for example, it, it wasn't the carbon fiber chassis that, that caused his death. I think he got hit in the head with a front push rod or something. So there's lots of other stuff that needed to be got under control, but the carbon fiber ch- chassis, and as it was from 1994 from Ayrton's death, it became. It really did become a survival cell, and now it's it's a lot heavier. But as you know, in general, the driver will sit inside this thing and, and have a massive impact, as we've seen, and uh, and get out and dust himself down. Good or bad, that's the way it is. So, as I say, the young drivers don't respect the, the safety as much as they used to do. But it's um, you can't go backwards. It's it's, it's a technology that's here. It's going to stay, um, and it's. It is fantastic, really. It's a, it's a fantastic material. Um, but I think you need to be very careful, again, still with this, the right application. I think the FIA worked work that quite well. They, they specify the, the modulus that you can use for certain areas of the chassis. So you've got anti-intrusion, which is tough toughness you're interested in. Um, so, they, you know, they do make sure that you're not building the thing as a, you know, a piece of cut glass. That if you touch it, it'll just shatter. Um, and that's the important thing, because as carbon fiber you could take from being a you know a piece of absolute thin very thin cut glass against a, a very thick plastic beaker that's the differences you can get you know one of them is very stiff and one of them is quite weak but one of them you can try and tear it apart and you couldn't the other one will just shatter the minute you touch it with someone so you've got to be very careful with its application it really is in many ways though the dream material for for motorsport isn't it just uh, astonishing it is astonishing and what you can do you know because it's uh, it's a moldable material um you can lay it up different ways you can put patches into it you know you can strengthen areas of it you, it's just a sheet form it's you know you can you can double up sheets so you know you can put unidirectional strips across it to stiffen things you know you can you can play tunes on it really yeah, definitely play tunes on it and just to give people an idea, obviously you mentioned the layup of it. If you're making a part in, in carbon fibre, let's say you've got a mould for it, literally when you say layup, you are laying strips of it on. You perhaps you can describe that process. Yeah, it's a bit like it's a bit like making a dress, I suppose you might call it. You, you'll have a, a, um, a pattern which will give you a shape. Um, and the, the teams nowadays have computer-controlled uh, cutters for, the sh- for carbon. So you'll, you'll cut a section out of it that will fit into your mould surface. Um, and then you'll you might have another one that's not got material in certain areas. So it might be a, a, a slightly smaller size, let's say, and you, so you can put that inside it. And so you'll change the layup depending upon the strength you want in certain areas of it. Normally, what you'd do is you'd put a a, a weave material, which is just a yeah, it's just a weave basically, um, to on the outer skin to protect it from uh, stone chips and stone damage. Because if you've got a, a unidirectional material, for example, on a wishbone or a push rod, uh, outside the outside skin, um, and it gets uh, hit by a stone, you, you can very, very easily break a few of those uh, uh, unidirectional pieces of carbon. So you want to protect it, so you put a, a protection layer on the outside. But you can, yeah, laying it up is a bit like cutting out a dress, a set of curtains or whatever. You, you know, you, you cut out a pattern, that pattern will fit the mould. You can bend one ply, ten plies, whatever you want. And you can change the materials on the way. Different plies for different materials. You can put in strips of unidirectional from diagonally, from corner to corner, or whatever you want to do with it. So it's very, very versatile. Um, I mean, it's not cheap, and uh, nothing's cheap whenever we talk about Formula One. But it's, you know, it's a fantastic material. 
now it's time for our interview with John Barnard. He needs no introduction, but let's go through the formalities. He started his motorsport career with Lola in 1969, then first became involved in Formula One with McLaren in 1972. After a spell with Parnelli Jones' his team, first an F1, then IndyCar, he joined Chaparral, where he produced the iconic ground effect Chaparral 2K. He then linked up with Ron Dennis at Project 4 for its mooted F1 entry, which eventually merged with McLaren. There, Barnard designed the iconic McLaren MP4, the first all-carbon monocoque F1 car. He later had spells at Ferrari, twice, Benetton, Arrows and Prost, and is rightly regarded as one of the greats of F1 car design. So over to Gary for his interview with John Barnard. Well, John, it's, uh, it's been a long time since uh, we met up. Obviously, you've been out of it for a while and out of Formula One for a while, and I've been out of Formula One for a while. So I suppose that the first thing is, you know, your career spans quite a few decades. What, what was the sort of era that you thought was, you know, this is the best? These are good racing cars. Yeah. Um, oh, it's got to be the 80s, I think, Gary. I think um, early 80s. Um, you know, we went from the 70s, late 70s, and we were into ground effect. If you remember the old sliding skirts and all that business, yeah. <laughs> um, and then we moved on to the eighties, and um, you know we had turbos and 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 underbodies and all sorts. Um, that got screwed up a bit when uh, Ferrari really stuck their oar into the FIA and uh, and got the underbodies uh, made flat. Basically, we had to run flat flat floors. If you remember. Um, yep. But unfortunately for Ferrari, that didn't take away the wind tunnel. So the wind tunnel was still a, an extremely useful gadget um, to, to, to get the most out of a flat floor car. The, the, the big word sort of these new regulations at the moment has been porpoising. It seems like it's something that nobody ever heard of before. But the, you've mm -hmm. obviously been through it yourself. As you say, there were sliding yeah. skirts and stuff. It's, it's nothing new. But, you know, um, should the teams have expected this to happen? I'm surprised they didn't have a better grip on it, to be honest with you. Um, I'm trying to think back to when we really experienced it. I remember 1981. Um, that was the first carbon McLaren uh, time. And um, we, had a, we had a rule, if I remember rightly. You may remember better than me, but I, I remember a rule that said it had to the car had to be four centimetres high um as it came into the pit lane and um you know we experimented with various things like a little soft rate spring on top of the normal road spring to try and let the car settle down a bit and then of course gordon murray came along <laughs> and basically blew the rule out of the water by just putting a hydraulic lowering system on <laughs> which is i thought was a little bit unfair um but there you go um <laughs> So, uh, you know, we, we really didn't experience much porpoising then. Um, I would say that I have not read the latest rules, so I don't know what restrictions there are on the underbody shape and expansions and all that kind of thing. Well, the one thing I can tell you is the latest rules are a nightmare. There's 177 pages of it. <laughs> and I tell you what, you don't want to read them. It's not good bedtime reading. I, I always often say, it's, you know, we used to bring a rule book home and you could sit down with a cup of tea and, and take most of it in. 
Mm. The, old, the old yellow book. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, 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 you can't. You, um, you know, you need 200 people, basically, because it's just... Well, they've probably got a special team just for reading the regs, yeah. I expect. But even after that, I don't know how the FIA police it because it's so complicated. No. But anyway, yeah. just, just moving on to the carbon chassis, you said there in 1981 at McLaren. I mean, that was uh, one of the yeah. things you brought to the to the circus, I suppose. Um, how did that come about? What, what was the reasons for it? It came about, really, Gary, because in 19... 19- uh, 79, I'd finished the Chaparral um, IndyCar and um, I it really wasn't working out with Jim Hall and um, I decided that I needed to be racing back in, in this country, in, in, in England or, or at least in Europe. And um, we'd moved back from California at the end of um, 78 and had done the Chaparral and then I thought, well, really, I ought to get back in Formula One. I'd been in Formula One before at Team McLaren back in the 70s, and that was that was the early 70s. Um, and then I went off to California, and then we came back, and um, I started looking around, and, and I was a good friend of Patrick Heads, and still am. And um, Patrick said to me, oh, there's this guy, Ron Dennis. He's looking for somebody to design a Formula <laughs> 2 car. <laughs> And I said, oh, I don't want to do Formula 2. You know, I want to get straight back into Formula 1. So the next thing I know, Ron's on the phone saying, oh, come down to Woking, you know, come and have a look at the operation down there, which I did. And, and that's how it all started. And, and what that did, it gave me, basically, I had a year, um, I think a bit like yourself, I had a year to produce a Formula 1 car mm-hmm. from scratch, Um which I thought at the time, I thought, well, that's great. You know, that gives me a chance to, to, to really get stuck into it and just basically do everything from scratch. Um, what I was looking for, I felt the chaparral had been a whole step. You know, it was a step move in, in indie cars, the first proper ground effect indie car. And I wanted to do something, given that space of time, I wanted to do something that was another step in Formula One. And at the time, ground effect was the big thing in Formula One. You know, underbodies, you know, is what, how can you get a better underbody? And so that prompted me to look at the chassis and think, well, how do I make a chassis that's really, really narrow at the bottom so that I can get the absolute maximum underbody? And then you start looking at your cross sections and your torsional stiffness and all your other things, you know, bending stiffness and so on. And you start to think, well, I've lost a lot geometrically by making this really narrow chassis. How do I gain that back? And one of the things that came out of the woodwork was was carbon fibre because, um, it, it, you know, it gave me stiffness, it gave me strength, it gave me lightweight as well. And I thought, well, that you know, that's got to be the way to go. Well, it was obviously a big... Uh deviation from the norm um how did you sort of get your your head around the fact of getting the fia to accept it for a start and all that sort of stuff that goes on with new materials yeah um I, luckily i i met um i met i went to uh, uh what was it then british aerospace down at weybridge and um they were making engine cowlings out of carbon honeycomb um sandwich panels and I got chatting to a guy there called Arthur Webb, who was sort of an old school engineer, a bit like myself. And, you know, I said, oh, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about doing a chassis in carbon. 
And so we talked, we talked through the basics, you know, and the basics for the carbon chassis were reduce all the joints. How can you make, how can you reduce the number of components? Because with carbon, you know, I'm going to be able to make a lot more shape, a lot more parts integral with the basic shape, with the basic monocoque. So that was where I started. And of course, at that time, we didn't have access to five-axis machines and things like that. So the, the shape had to be, in effect, um, it had to have flat panels on it. Um, I could get, you know, mold tools machined with flat surfaces with, with various angles and so on. Uh, and, and that's where we went. I mean, the, the idea, the designing with carbon was a big change because um, just making pickups, you know, attaching wishbones, attaching suspension parts was required a whole different thinking. Um, attaching the engine at the back, it just you just had to be thinking along a different methods to what you were used to using with an aluminium monocoque. And that took a lot of uh, a lot of thinking about a lot of um, learning, if you like. You're listening to the Race F1 Tech Show, brought to you by Aramco. Aramco continuously pushed the limits of engineering excellence. As the global energy partner of F1, they drive a shared vision to real-world innovation that aims to lower emissions, enhance performance, and accelerate human potential. Aramco, powered by HAL. The, the, the initial cars of him right were, were internally molded, um, and as you say, fairly flat panels. Um, but just building up that sort of Lego kit inside the, the chassis or getting it back out again once you molded the chassis was, must be no easy feat. How did you go about that? Yeah, I mean, the original mold tool was a work of art because it was, it was um, five pieces, great big uh, cast blocks of aluminium that represented the inside shape of the chassis. And they were all um, bolted and, and pinned together. And the idea was that the, the cockpit opening, um, in order to get the mold tool out, you had a middle section where the cockpit opening was that was held to the other sections with internal bolts. So you had an access in the middle um, section of, of, of um, cast tooling that you could take out, so then take the bolts out. So then you, you picked up the middle section and then brought the other sections to the middle and just kept pulling them out through the through the cockpit opening. And as I say, there were five big, big pieces um, that, that all went together to form the internal mould. The reason for going internal at that time was because, again, I was trying to follow the basic principle in composite, which was to reduce your um, joints. And I thought by doing that, we can make the chassis. And we did. We made the whole outside of the monocoque all in one go, in one piece. There was no joint between any of it. And I suppose for the bulkheads, the, the, the dash bulkhead or the front bulkhead or the, the seatback bulkhead, all that surface was molded in so you could make it fit pretty well. Well, it was. we had, to be fair, it was the outside shell that was one piece. We had a seatback and then we had two internal panels alongside the driver, which represented which gave us a box section alongside the driver to give us the strength. And then we, we, we had a steering bulkhead, which was all that was in um, carbon honeycomb composite. Um, the, the front, there was a bulkhead in front, which picked up suspension, which I, I must confess, 
um, was going to be carbon and it ended up being aluminium, uh, uh, um, fabricated aluminium, because I ran out of time basically uh, to do it in carbon. Yeah, so then obviously there was a change to the external molded chassis. Was that, you know, that, that changed it to this day, basically. That's what everybody, everybody does yeah. nowadays and made the body surface up. What, what was the reason for that? Well, you could throw away your bodywork, basically. I mean, the, the first one I did, the first McLaren, had um, basically had fiberglass bodywork on it, as, as would have um, an ordinary aluminium chassis. Um, the sides of the chassis were exposed sort of below the waistline, if you like, um, but all the top cockpit and everything else was was um, a drop-on um, uh, fiberglass uh, body shell. Um, of course, once you got into the area of being able to make your mould tools with composite surfaces, you know, with uh, uh, three-dimensional surfaces, um, with the advent of the five-axis machine, et cetera, then that changed the whole game again because then you could you could put your finished shape on your actual monocoque. And of course, by doing that, you did several things. You eliminated bodywork. You also increased the basic envelope of your chassis so that you gained geometrically in terms of stiffness. Um, but it did mean then you had a joint between, we, we actually, the joint and most cars, I think, went between a top half shell and, and a bottom half shell. So there had to be a joint right the way around the monocoque to, to join them together, as I'm sure you you know. Yeah, well, very very early in the days of, of the carbon chassis, we saw John Watson have a, a bit of a crash at Monza, I think it was, uh, where the engine and that came off the back. And it, I think mm. that was the first time that it made people realise that carbon was was pretty good. You know, the survival cell had become the, the buzzword. Yeah, I mean, it, uh, that changed the game a lot, actually. Um, it, um, th- up to that point, there had been an awful lot of, what should we say, mumblings, um, you know, comments along the pit lane that wait till it has a big accident, it will explode in a cloud of dust, you know, this kind of thing, which, to be fair, um, we weren't really sure what would happen in a big accident. I was pretty sure that the first monocoque, we first monocoques we built were strong, probably stronger than they needed to be, um, but they were certainly very strong. But the Watson accident at Monza, um, it changed the game. He, you know, with a what looked like a really bad accident, um, well, it was. I mean, he knocked the whole engine and gearbox off the back of the chassis um, and got out and walked away. And, and that then changed everybody's mind. You know, they kind of thought, oh, hang on a minute. Maybe this stuff is not as bad as as bad as everybody's been talking about. Well, we can see, you know, even lately where that's taken us to. I mean, Roman Grosjean's accident in Bahrain a couple of years ago, mm. and then at Silverstone, the British Grand Prix, um, horrendous accidents in both cases. But you know, the driver steps out, dusts himself down, and there to fight another yeah. day. Yeah, the the, the um, what's his name, Grandju um, accident was was really horrifying. I, I was really worried that even with a even with the with the halo, um, you know, he was gonna get some get his head knocked about, but there you go, he didn't. And the thing that I am disappointed in with the modern cars is the way they've gone up in weight. Um, you know, and which, you know, I, I I hear it's because they've increased penetration requirements and all this kind of thing, but I can't believe it puts that much weight on them. 
So I don't really know why they're so heavy. No, well, sort of back in your time, my time, it was 600 kilograms, you know. Now that, that, that car, included the driver, didn't it, Gary? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> now, you know, off, off the grid yeah, at, the, at the British Grand Prix, for example, his car would weigh 900 kilograms. Yeah. I, I mean, that's, that's a lot of weight. Um, it is a lot of weight, and it's also a lot more um, a lot more energy going into an accident. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, the more you put the weight up, the more you've got to increase the safety on it. It's a bit of a... a Bit of a dead end, if you ask me. Yeah, so it's, it's very difficult to find a solution to that, though, because obviously the Sincerity Senna's accident in '94, uh, Emila, you know, mm. things have pushed on, and they've, mm. they've created this, as we say, survival cell now, where the hopefully the driver can be contained, um, and accidents can happen around them. But again, mm. somewhere along the line, I think you have to draw the line because young drivers coming in don't respect it anymore. You know, you can go out and, mm. and drive way over your talent. Uh, have an yeah. accident and, and walk away from it. Yeah. No. I must admit, I was well, first of all, I would like to have seen some slow mos of the of the actual incident on track that, that sent him upside down because I I'm you know, I didn't I didn't understand how he got flipped over. Um, I mean, we've seen cars go spinning in the air, but you know, being flipped over like that, I don't know. Well I think he um he basically drove over George Russell's left rear wheel, and obviously, what you know, he was coming from behind George Russell, so climbed up over the top of him. That turned right. that turned him right at sort of mm -hmm. ninety degrees to the track, and then mm -hmm. it went into a bit of a barrel roll. But there was obviously a problem with the rollover bar, and because that uh, oh. either broke off or punched its way into the chassis, uh, and it meant the I top didn't. of the car was right. fairly flat. So it didn't mm. sort of it didn't have a triangle to roll itself back again. So right. it stayed upside yeah. down for a long, long time, mm. and uh, and that did the damage. Well, I suppose you know I don't know. I, I mean, I assume they've increased the rollover bar requirements since the weight's gone up. But um, that's obviously an area where they will need to look at because you know the rollover bar was one of the fundamental safety features of the cars i mean that, that and it was a very important test yeah, so um well moving on from that but that you know as i say a lot of drivers would like to thank you i think for uh, for introducing carbon because a lot of drivers walking around now that might not have been if it hadn't been for your uh uh your introduction yeah it's nice to leave something behind <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognise the value of asking questions. At Aramco, answering questions helps them engineer a better future. So if you'd like to know how something works in F1, we'd love for you to send us a question. And if you're lucky, we might just answer it on a future episode. Just record a voice note on your phone and send it to podcasts at therace.com. That's podcasts at therace.com. And don't forget the hyphen. Let us know who you are and give us your question. And if you prefer, you can send it in as a written question. This week, we've got a two-part question from Oscar Robledo, which we're going to let him get away with because they're very much two connected questions. Who, apart from Ferrari, does Gary think will have a drop-off in performance in Belgium when the new floor rules come into effect? And what is the story about the retracting skid plates? Does Gary have any idea who might be running these? This is all about the technical directive, the various forms of technical directive that we've been working through. Yeah, I mean, obviously somebody stepped in knowing something. We've, we've seen some pictures of... Uh, two-piece skids on the cars um, I, I, I'm not sure that I 
I don't think that's a, a, a drama. I think what, what they have is a sort of a carrier, I suppose you might call it. We see the pictures that we've got of the Haas, which has got a, a spring and a, a sort of damper unit on a swing arm at the front of the car. So basically what you do with that is, um, is preload that spring to a certain... For, before, it takes a certain force before that preload would break, or before you break that preload. And that's, the, that's what you pass the test with. Totally legal. Um, but then the, the, at the bottom of that, there will be a... a a mounting plate as such that the floor will mount onto and then there's also a skid on the floor that basically it all bolts together in the end so you will be running on the skids I don't think we've got retractable skids but what we do have is the fact that if you taking that front um, support as an example if you if it if it's 10 kilograms per, mil- per millimetre or whatever it is the load the FIA put onto it I'm not quite sure what it is the moment you get to 11 kilograms of force on the floor the, the floor will deflect so it doesn't, it's not rigid, um, it does deflect. Now the FIA, in the regulations, you're not allowed flexible bodywork, so immediately there was a regulation that the FIA could implement to say, do away with all that stuff. It was put there with all the right reasons in the world because of people driving over curbs and, and damaging chassis. If it was rigid and you had a big curb, like one of those, those stupid sausage curbs, you would damage your chassis. So. It had the right reasons for being there, and now some people are maybe exploiting it a little bit further. Um, so the, the the technical directive is trying to control that area, and what other teams are doing um, seems to be that where the where the car is is checked for its legality, it's raised up on three rams out of a out of a plate that the cars are put onto. And those three rams go into three holes through the through the plank. Um, they can go through the floor it, it, the reference plane is the flat plane underneath the car so you can go through a hole in the floor if you want to um, but it's, it's that's where you measure the rest of the car from and below that you have only you, the thickness is only the plank so you you know you've got a hard point in the chassis at that place at that position the hard point is just making something that's rigid um, so the car can be lifted up on those three points and then you measure the rear wing height and front wing height and all that sort of stuff. So what the, the technical directive seems to be hinting at is that the, every team puts a skid around that hole. And basically that's the holes that they measure the thickness of the plank, which starts life off at 10 millimetres. Anywhere around that hole, if it's worn down to 9 millimetres, you're in trouble. Um, so what seems to be happening is that the, the chassis has a hard point for the rams to push on to lift the car up. But the floor itself, if you if you made it, that ram a bigger diameter, the floor itself would push up a bit. It only has to push up a couple of millimetres, and it means you can run the car lower, uh, you, uh, which with these ground effect cars is very valuable. But it's not just the fact you can run it lower, you can let it run on the ground a bit more. Um, it, it will be lower, but if, you, if the skid does hit the ground, it can move, so it doesn't wear so much. Whereas if it was a, rigid, a complete rigid thing, it would hit the ground and it would wear, but also it would be unnerving for the driver, so they'd raise the right height a bit, so they'd lose down for it. So it's a circle of events of trying to get the car lower, and this achieves it. And I think at the back of the car, there's a, a large skid area as well, and, and that's an area where the teams could be um, trying to exploit lower in the back of the car and get more from the under underfloor of the car, get more downforce from the underfloor, because they can run the car a bit lower. I think we see two different things. We see porpoising. The porpoising is whenever the car reasonably low frequency has an aerodynamic stall from the diffuser or the underfloor and, and it loses downforce and the car rises up and it picks up the downforce again and it goes back down again and then we see what we had in Mercedes in um, 
in uh, Azerbaijan. You know, that is that is it and Monaco. That is it banging into the ground, basically. So, to me, the Ferrari and Red Bull and other cars can bang into the ground a bit, but not look to it, not, not bounce back from the ground. Um, whereas the Mercedes seems to hit the ground and it hits it very hard. So, of the teams that might not lose by these regulations, it would, I'd probably be pointing at Mercedes. Um, of teams that that, uh, that will lose or should lose, but uh, you'd have to say that the other front-running teams are are probably up to something. Um, I don't exactly know what, but I wouldn't be surprised if if Red Bull and Ferrari do lose is the wrong word. You know, you're probably talking a tenth or two tenths of a second if you if you've got it right or you got it wrong. So it's not going to be a uh, you know a huge huge problem, but it's still. A negative still going in the wrong direction so it'll be very interesting for me to see and, I, and I'm glad they have put it off for a bit of time it's now Spa um, which is a circuit because of its nature fast straights, you know, long straights and the twisty bit in section 2 that downforce it's a, it's a prime mover there, you need a car that's very efficient down those two straights on the way up out of El Rouge and, ba- and back down to the bus stop um, but in that middle bit you need, to, you need to make sure you've got a car that's got downforce so Spa is probably the f- what next demanding circuit coming up. Um, so, yeah, somebody will lose a little bit. I'm not sure who it is, but I would think if anybody's going to lose, it would be Red Bull and Ferrari, maybe a few others, and, and Mercedes might not just lose too much. As you said, the fact that this has been pushed back as well shows yeah, somebody's yeah, yeah. not happy with the yeah, yeah. Well, that, that, that's what happens. You know, somebody will put forward techni- the, the technical directive as a... Uh, it's, it, the regulations are written with all the best wool and tent in the world and then you get a technical directive which is to clarify a question that somebody's asked in reality and on the way there it gives you the FIA's opinion of how they read their own regulation um, because that's the important thing you know all the time you're always questioning regulations but it needs to be clarified to all the teams uh, and a technical directive is the best way of doing that so um, it's not the, the technical directive doesn't become the rule but it becomes the opinion that the FIA have of it and then if you start fiddling around and looking at your car you might find something that surprises you so um, await the space I think you might call it Well there's going to be no lack of talk about the technical directive in Formula 1 over the next couple of months it'll be a very very hot topic when we get to the Belgian Grand Prix at Spa that's for sure Well thanks Gary as always for your insight we'll be back next week with another episode of the Race F1 Tech Podcast brought to you by Aramco with more from Gary You've been listening to the Race F1 Tech Show brought to you by Aramco. Be sure to like, follow or subscribe on your favourite podcast app so you never miss an episode. The Athletic.